Hello and welcome. Connie Reagan Green here from HugeProfitsTinyList.com, and today I have someone special for you. Shell Horowitz is an American author, international speaker, and marketing consultant. He has been an early and consistent popularizer of the idea that businesses can succeed by embracing principles of honesty, integrity, and environmental responsibility. More recently, he has been an active proponent of the role of business in turning hunger and poverty into sufficiency, war into peace, and catastrophic climate change into planetary balance while making a profit. Welcome, Shell. Thanks, Connie. Good to be here. Yes, now I was reading that from your Wikipedia page, and did you write that part of it? I did. <laughs> I love it because it really tells who you are. I, you know, it's fantastic. So tell us, tell us more about yourself, please. Well, let's see. I have been about making the world better pretty much my whole life. My earliest memory is at about age three. My parents were having a party, and I was going around taking the packs of cigarettes that their guests had left on the coffee table and opening them up to break them in half, not out of malice, but out of self-protection. So that is the earliest time that I remember an act that could be said to have put me on the activist path. It's the <laughs> wow. earliest thing that I remember entirely. So I, I, I started early. My mother was a civil rights worker. She was one of the white people that the black organizations could call to find out if that apartment that the black family tried to rent was really already rented. Mm. So it was a, 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 an environment that was very supportive of the idea that people can and should make a difference. There's a Jewish principle called tikkun olam, which translates as healing the world, and that was very much part of the culture that I was raised in. I really um, kind of floundered in terms of what I was going to do for a living for a while after college. I graduated very, very young, and it was a time when it was not easy to find work. So I eventually decided that I would do freelance magazine and newspaper writing, and while I was ready, waiting for that career to take off, I would start a little typing service so that I could put bread on the table. That was back in the days when people typed term papers. Yes. So yes, I did that. I don't and type, so I, I, I couldn't do that. I was not a typist. Yeah, well, fortunately <laughs> for me, I came of age at a time when keyboarding skills were available to me because I couldn't have been a writer if people had had to struggle with my handwriting. <laughs> it was seventh grade that my teacher started refusing to put up with my handwriting and saying, you will type this over. So by the time I hit college, I was already pretty experienced with that. And then working on the school newspaper, you had to be decent with a typewriter because it was the only way to get your stories in. So I did that, but the business rather quickly started evolving, and pretty soon it was incorporating a lot of writing components, and I didn't need to go and pound my head on the ceiling and try to get articles published. It was much, much easier to write for businesses and individuals that needed something written. So that evolved my business that I started in 1981. I'm still running that business, but I haven't typed a term paper in 25 years. And it has moved much more in the direction of helping people think about their marketing and doing kind of the big strategic picture as well as writing the materials necessary for them to go forward. And Recently, the last several years, it's gone much more into the consulting side of things, helping people think really strategically about the overall direction of their business, the role that marketing plays in it. And, and I am so excited about this, 
what kinds of social change and environmental justice can be incorporated into the DNA of their business? How can they make the world better while making a profit? It's the most exciting work I've ever done, and I'm just thrilled that at age 57 and 58, I'm finally figuring out what to do when I grow up. <laughs> Wonderful. But, you know, let me, let me go back a little bit, because what, it was while in college that you met your wife? No. I, I met her at an open poetry reading in Greenwich Village in 1978. She was quite recently out of college, and I actually finished in 76. Okay, because was, really this this is your soulmate. This this is a woman that really has helped you to become who you are. Would you describe it that way? Yes, she's wonderful. I'm married to the novelist Dina Friedman, D. Dina Friedman, on her books. And we have had a wonderful relationship. Actually, just this last week, we celebrated 32 years of marriage. Oh, wonderful. And 36 and a half as a couple. And we are very supportive of each other. Uh, we're each other's best readers and toughest critics. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, We do a lot of things together. We eat dinner together most nights. We usually walk or bike together on the days that she's not gone all day teaching at the university that she also works at. So like today, actually, I had an appointment in Amherst, and she did a yoga class in Amherst, and then we met afterwards and hiked through the most incredible fall colors, and then she went off to the university, and I came home and started working. Wonderful. So and this I, is not I love untypical. <laughs> okay, and now you live in a house that was built in 1743. It's a solarized antique farmhouse in Massachusetts. Yeah, I, I believe it might be the oldest solar home in the country. To give wow. you an idea just how that how old that is, it's the same year that Thomas Jefferson was born. <laughs> and we're only the third family to have it, which continually blows my mind. I didn't grow up in a culture where, where families held a house for 100 years. <laughs> and um, we were very, very lucky to find this one, and we solarized it with a hot water system in 2001, and then three years later we put a tiny little photovoltaic system on, and we're actually talking to our farmer neighbors who recently put in a methane generator about using some of their waste heat to heat our house, so that would make it even cooler and more green. Yeah. But it's wonderful. Yeah. It's it's a house that was built to last, old chestnut beams, this incredible view of Mount Holyoke, which at the moment is turning all sorts of wonderful colors. And people come and they're, they're always their jaw drops and they say, Wow, what a view And we we feel very privileged. Every morning I wake up, look out the window and just think I'm blessed to be able to live here. I'm blessed to be able to live the life I lead where the work I do is meaningful in the world, where I have a wonderful relationship with my wife and my kids and get to eat this wonderful organic local food all the time and just i i've learned to be not a glass half full person but a glass mostly full person i like that i decided I like that. in my that, 20s that i was sense. going to, uh, to have a happy life and it was, i always refer to that as the best decision i ever made yes yes well now Shell, you know, I'm an entrepreneur, and people that are that are listening to this typically are people that are starting a business or they already have a business. Much of it is online, and we always feel that doing things online is a good idea for the environment. You know, I, I own one – I live in two cities. I own one printer that I use maybe once a month when something wow. really has to be printed out. And usually if somebody wants me to print something, I say, I don't use a printer, and they find a way around that which always amazes me. But, um, you know, how can all of us be more aware on a daily basis 
and how would we really get started down this path that you've really devoted your life to? It's actually very easy, and I have to give you kudos for not using a printer, Connie, because I find that I can't read long periods of time on the screen. So I do use a printer, although I use it much, much less than I used to because I discovered that if I bump up the font size to maybe 16 points, I can read a lot of stuff that would be too tiring to read in 9 or 10 mm -hmm. points on screen. But on paper, I'm still blessed with very good eyes for reading on paper, and I can read the 9, 10 point stuff. And so one thing I do is when I do print something, I print it double-sided. And that okay. right there is a tremendous savings. I figure that I'm saving 40% of the paper that I used to use before I had a two-sided printer. And there's, the, the last printer I bought was actually only $250, and it was double-sided. So it's not really any more expensive than buying a regular laser printer, and you get 40% of your paper cost saved and 40% of your carbon footprint on that paper saved. So that's one thing that's very easy. Another would be to go down to the hardware store and buy a box of those baby safety outlet protectors and look around for all the outside walls that you have and any plugs that are not in the wall, anything that's empty. You're going to be leaking hot air in the winter and cold air in the summer out through those outlets. So stick in the outlet protectors. You can also buy the little foam gaskets, which cost almost nothing to put behind them, and you'll stop a lot of leakage that way. Make sure to caulk your windows in the winter and easy, easy stuff like that that anybody can do. Uh, switch to low-flow showerheads and toilets. Of course, light bulbs. Uh, people all know right now that CFL light bulbs are far better for energy consumption than the old incandescents. But what they might not realize is that now LEDs, which are almost as much better again as CFLs are better than incandescents, uh, typically they'll run about a third of the energy even of a CFL. The LED bulbs have now gotten in the last couple of years only to the point where the light quality is really good, the expense is much lower than it was, and they last practically forever. I wrote At one point I wrote a column on this about the idea that if you are running a business, let's say, and you have a high ceiling, let's just say you run a sports arena as an example, your real cost in changing your light bulb is not the light bulb. It's the guy you've got to spend $35 an hour on to go out in the cherry picker, which costs you probably another at least 10 or $15 an hour in fuel to go out there and change that light bulb. So if you buy an LED light bulb, and even if you pay five times as much for it as you would for an incandescent of the same light quality, if you only have to change that bulb every 15 years instead of every six months, you're going to start saving a lot of money. I think if I ran the numbers in that column, and I think it came out to something like $4 million if you were replacing 50 bulbs a year typically. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> well, it, I'll tell you, it's, it's coincidental we're talking about this right now because just yesterday in the house in Santa Clarita, so that's the, the larger house where there are animals and, and more people and, and you know other things, um, some of the light bulbs in the kitchen and dining area that that were that are those lights that we got for fifty cents each almost ten years ago now when it was kind of an experiment to see if people would buy them mm -hmm. and people's complaint at that point were that they were ugly, which shocked me i don 't really care about the beauty of a light bulb and <laughs> yesterday so the conversation was, do we replace these now that it 's going to cost three or four dollars a bulb, or do we go back? to those old horrible kind. 
And I said something similar. I said, well, it doesn't really matter what, what the bulb cost. It matters how much we'll save over time, and, you know, it shouldn't even be a discussion. So, and I pay for things at this location, so I have the say-so, which helps out. That helps, yeah. But over, yeah, but assuming you're going to keep that house for another 10 years, you will easily make the money back. Yes. Yes. Uh, many times over, probably. And I have to say, it was only about two years ago that the quality of LED lighting was not very good. And now mm-hmm. it's really much better. We have pretty much our entire house switched over, other than some floor lamps that don't take those bulbs. So, but anything that's not a standalone lamp that's part of the house circuitry is now on an LED. Yes, because it's just such a difference. And I, I don't know, I guess people just aren't aren't thinking about the importance of kind of life in general. Yeah, but there's so much you can do in every area. Just things as simple as uh, batching your errands. So, like, I live seven miles from anywhere. So (laughs) I always think when I'm getting in the car, okay, I'm going to this place. What is it near? What else might I need in the next week or two where I can grab it now while I'm out and going by? So thinking that way. Or for that matter, if you live in town, it's often faster and always more environmentally friendly to take a bicycle. Uh, If you live in a place like New York City or L.A., the place that's really congested, it's probably going to be about seven miles is the the break-even point. So anything that's less than a seven-mile drive through the crowded urban streets is likely to be faster on a bike. It used to be five, but I think we've gotten more traffic since then because it was five like in the 80s when I first studied this. So I'm guessing it's around seven now. So if you're going three miles on your commute, let's say, and you can do that in 15 minutes on a bike, and by the time you factor in where you parked and where you're going to have to park and how much money you spent on parking and how much gas you've – my goodness, it's it's really – we need to start looking at whole whole life cycle costs. So a bike, of course, costs much less than a car to begin with, but not only that, it costs much less to operate. And there's once the thing is built, there's no fuel issue at all other than the calories that you personally burn in the food that you consumed in order to pedal that bike, which is a good thing anyway because most of us don't get enough exercise. So at every there's a guy I'm very, very fond of his work named Amory Lovins, and he's really an expert on this at looking at the whole life cycle. I just read an essay that he published in, my goodness, 1980 that was all about how when you start factoring in all all the different pieces of it, that even back then when renewable energy was much, much more expensive than it is now and gas was much cheaper, it was cost competitive. And he, by the way, he built his own house in 1983 just outside of Aspen, Colorado. Connie, what is Aspen famous for? Um, well, <laughs> I have so many things that come to mind. I think of skiing, yes, but I also think of famous and wealthy people and a lot of cocaine and other drug use. <laughs> well, skiing is the part that I wanted to focus on here. All right. <laughs> what do you need for skiing? Um, you need your skis and your boots. and What uh, kind of weather conditions? All right, so we, we either need to have snow or they still do man-made snow. And what do you need to have snow? Uh, rainfall. Temperature-wise. Yeah, so weather below below the freezing point. Yeah, so it's cold. Yes. Okay. Amory Levins built a house like five miles from Aspen, Colorado, a place that his entire economy is built on being cold. His house not only doesn't have a furnace, but he's growing bananas in his sunroom. 
<laughs> because that house was designed so well that it doesn't need a furnace or an air conditioner or a lot of the other systems that we take for granted. And thus, the capital cost savings of not having to include those things, if you're saving $5,000 on a furnace and $3,000 on a whole house air conditioner, that buys a lot of energy improvement. The result being with even the, the primitive technologies we had in 1983, the energy improvements paid for themselves in full in less than a year. Hmm. Now, he was involved in a much larger scale project, the Empire State Building, the grand lady of New York City's skyline. The Empire State Building spent about $13 million to do what's called a deep energy retrofit, where they changed out all the windows and put in temperature controls that were much better and did a whole bunch of stuff. Not cheap, okay. Not anything I'm going to run out and do tomorrow on my house, I assure you. But, get this. They are saving $4.4 million every single year. Wow. That is a 33% ROI. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know any place else you can invest besides energy efficiency where you're going to get anything close to a 33% ROI, yeah, uh, except maybe if, if you happen to know which is the winning lottery ticket. <laughs> <laughs> so these funny. kinds of savings are possible, are achievable, are good for business, and it's interesting to me that a lot of the very large corporations that used to really poo-poo going green have suddenly discovered that it's very much in their bottom line financial interest to go green. Even as profit-driven a company as Walmart, a company that really doesn't have a tree-hugger bone in its body, <laughs> um, has discovered that going green is really good for its business practices because they are saving boatloads of money and making boatloads of money. They actually sell more organic food than Whole Foods does, and they sell it to people who, for the most part, have probably never stepped into a Whole Foods. Now, I'm hoping that the, that's been the wave of the last 10 years as companies figuring this out. The next wave that I'm hoping to spearhead is for them to see that just as there was enormous economic opportunity in going green and marketing green, and I actually do a talk on this called Making Green Sexy. So there is just as much economic opportunity in bettering the world in finally saying in the year 2015, we really have no business putting up with hunger, poverty, war, and climate catastrophe. We know better than that. We know how to fix all of this stuff. Let's go do it, and let's do it in ways that don't motivate by guilt and shame, which never works, but motivate instead by you can make money doing this. Okay, so is is that the approach then that it's best for all of us to take, you know, when we're trying to talk to other people, um, to to really convince them? Because you know, I, I spend we, we you and I spent a little time talking yesterday. I spend time every year, at least a month, over in Europe, and there they're very conscious. I'm in I'm in Scandinavia when I'm there. They're very very conscious of every little detail with water and electricity and gas and and everything. And in the United States. We just are so, so wasteful. Yeah. So is that the it best approach to people? That, that still, after all these years, that our energy consumption per person is more than twice, not only Scandinavia, but Britain and Germany's. Mm -hmm. You know, so Germany and Britain and uh, Denmark and, and Sweden are places where you can live a very comfortable Western-style life, but they're doing it with half the energy per person that we're using. And those are some pretty cold places there, Sweden and Denmark. And oh, yes. Yeah. 
<laughs> so yeah, it's I, not I, about I was there oh, wait, I was I'm, there just yeah. before Christmas 2014 and it was it was really cold. <laughs> so yes, this is an approach to take to people. It depends on who you're talking to. You need to kind of do a little mental classification. If you were talking to a deep green fanatic like me, then you can use the arguments about the world and people will be receptive to it. If you're talking to someone who drives their Hummer a quarter mile to the convenience store to buy fast food, you're going to need different arguments because they're not going to care that green is good for the planet. But if you say to that Hummer driver, you know, you could afford that vacation you always dreamed about if you made these few simple lifestyle changes, they might actually hear that. And if that Hummer driver owns a business and you can tell them that, well, gee, you've got this fixed cost here of $2 million a year. What if we brought that down to 500000 What do you think about that? You're going to get a pretty good yes. But it's interesting. I, I was in Iceland a few years ago. Iceland is pretty much entirely powered by renewable energy except for the vehicles. It's all either hydro or geothermal. And one of the things that shocked me about Iceland is in a lot of ways they've kind of forgotten that you still should be conserving People will leave water faucets running and, and lights on that they're not using just because the power is so cheap that they don't think they have to worry about it. And to me, I think they could learn some lessons from us there. But by and large, if you go to Scandinavia, if you go to Germany, if you go to pretty much anywhere in Northern Europe, you'll see a very different attitude about resource use. And one of the things that Lovins talks about is that when you are using electricity, there's a lot of wastage in making electricity out of other forms of energy. So the things that can be used directly rather than converted to energy and then used are, are often cleaner ultimately and much cheaper. So looking at how to accomplish a task rather than, well, this task is something we've always done with coal-fired electricity, let's make more coal-fired electricity. You can say, well, maybe we can just use direct heating from this, the waste of this um, manufacturing plant right next door. There, there are a lot of creative ways we can do this. All right. Well, you know, Joe, you're you're just an expert marketer. You you know, you've been known for this for so many years. And you know, someone like me, I'm relatively new to to marketing. And I want to talk now about some of your books. So okay. you have Gorilla Gorilla Marketing Goes Green. How are you within your books and within your business? How are you combining these ideas? Um. Can you be more specific? I could take that in 20 different directions. <laughs> All right. So how can we be green marketers? How about that? Kind okay. A, a more you start approach. with with that <laughs> same kind of market segmentation that we were just talking to in the one-on-one -on -one conversations with people who aren't convinced. Okay. You do the same thing with your marketing. So, for example, if you have a green product, um, I don't know, you can throw an example out if you want me to get specific uh, of some kind of product that you would market differently to different audiences. Um, oh, here's one. Okay, well, there's, okay go ahead. I was um, going to say a composting bin because I, I compost, but I think I'm the only one in my neighborhood who does. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I would have to give that one some thought, especially since I'm not too happy with the results of my own compost bin. But there's this stuff in a spray bottle called Y-Flush, and it's an enzyme compound, all natural, that neutralizes the odor and the um, staining of urine, the result being that you don't have to flush nearly as often. 
Now, there are a lot of markets for that in the green arena, and that's where this company has chosen to focus. So they show up at the green festivals, and they're talking to the deep green environmentalists there who are very happy to save water and very eager to try it. But there are huge markets of non-green people that you could market this to. For example, as we're speaking here in the fall of 2015, California hasn't had any decent water supply in a long time. So anybody who lives in California is probably dealing with a stinky toilet by now. So here you can say your toilet can smell just as good as it used to and you won't be in a violation of the the codes about water use. So that's an argument that would work to a non-green customer for this green product because you're segmenting out and you're going on the basis of self-interest again. So in terms of a large industrial user, I don't know if they have a technology to administer this automatically the way they have automatic flush, but let's just say they do. And then you can make a a water dollars and cents argument to these major consumers of like a a highway rest area bathroom that go through far more water than you and I can even conceive of in a very short time. And and so you would, each one, you would look at, okay, who's the audience? What are their pain points? What are their pleasure points? How can you wrap a marketing message around this? And I do this for my customers. Uh, This is... For for my clients, this is what I do. I show them exactly how to identify the different kinds of markets, how to tailor the appeal of any particular product or service to these different markets. Because you don't want to market the same way to everybody any more than you would want to run the same ad in the National Enquirer and the New Yorker. You would be throwing away money in both places. Right, right. But you might have a product that would work equally well for both audiences, but you are going to need different approaches. Okay, because I think, you know, both you and I were were quite influential within, you know, our respective communities. And I think, you know, I know when I talk about things like I donate regularly to Kiva, and Mm -hmm. when I talk about that, then sure enough, I have have a group of people that will go over and, and make a loan and various things. And I think maybe that becomes part of this where as it becomes part of who we are, then people that respect us and follow us and are learning from us then it would make sense for them to at least learn more about it. Sure. I, I started donating to Kiva when Denise Wakeman recruited her to her team, to my, recruited me to her team. I seem to be and I was on that team originally before I started my own team. I was on her team for about a year. Yeah. That's and why I've I made my a, first loans. Yes. I, I've been a fan of micro-lending for a lot of years. Micro-lending is something that Kiva and many other organizations do where tiny amounts of money, 10 25 $100, can make a huge difference for an entrepreneur just starting out in some developing country. And the there is a peer network. They're part of a, a lending circle so that there's some checks and balances to make sure from other people in the community that the loan will be repaid. Yes. So it's yes. a way of dealing with not only dealing with people that a traditional bank would never look at and in amounts that a traditional bank would never look at because it's going to cost them more to process it than they're going to get back in principle, an interest repayment. One, but these very one. lean, efficient, Internet-based systems have figured out ways of moving the money around. It all started with Mohammed Yunus and the Grameen effort in Bangladesh. Very, very exciting stuff. And the whole sharing economy thing is something that I, I love. Yes, <laughs> yes. Just, well, here, Shell, I'm going to tell you a story. You're going to like this story. I do okay. retreats several times a year up in Santa Barbara, so my, my clients come in for five or six days, 
and we work together, and I try to find a project for us to work on together while they're there. So just this past January, we had something that's called Backyard Bounty, where in Santa Barbara there are people that they have orchards, but they're small. They're so small that a, a large company wouldn't take it over. They wouldn't come and harvest it or anything. And so it's up to local people to be able to do it. So they put this group together. So this was one where we went. It was about 30 citrus trees on the side of a hill overlooking the ocean. So it was beautiful. But on the side of the hill, it was very difficult to you know, be able to get your stance there and, and pick. And we literally, and I do this with the high school group of Rotary. It's called Interact. And so there were 11 of us total. There were eight high school students and three of my, you know, my clients and I at that time. And we literally picked a ton of citrus fruit in about five hours that day. Mm -hmm. And what was interesting is one of my clients is from Ghana, and he goes back and forth to Ghana, and that's just, you know, who he is. I've known him for several years, a, an incredible man. And so when I went back home that day after us, us picking, I went on Kiva to see who was doing something in Ghana. And sure enough, there were people, and they were actually picking citrus. That, that was their business there. So I made a loan. I sent it out to my list. I put it on Facebook. And my client was amazed to see this. He wasn't even familiar with Kiva. So I tied everything in together, and the result was about $500 in loans to people in, in Ghana and elsewhere because some people chose other countries there. And it was a wonderful experience for everyone. That's great, yeah, because you, like me, you're a connector, and you want to make sure that the maximum number of people hear about the great things that are going on in the world. And you asked yeah. me about my books. I do have Guerrilla Marketing Goes Green, which right now the only place you can get it is from me because it is out of print. You can find it at GuerrillaMarketingGoesGreen.com, and Guerrilla is spelled G-U-E-R-R-I-L-L-A, two R's, two L's. My co-author developed a great brand, but it's hard to spell. Um, and then the new one coming out, and Guerrilla Marketing Goes Green, by the way, was on the category bestseller list for at least 34 different months. And uh, it was published by Wiley, but they, I, I now am the sole place to get it, basically. But uh, um, in the spring, actually, just in time for Earth Day, my new one, Guerrilla Marketing to Heal the World, comes out. And it's just cram full of exciting companies doing amazing things. I think you'll love this one, Connie. There's a company yes, it's exciting. Delight, D period L I G H T. They do kerosene lanterns, solar powered LED. They to, sorry, they do solar powered LED lanterns to replace kerosene lanterns. Now, since you've studied some about the African economy, you probably know that kerosene lanterns are a major source of toxicity, a major source of deadly fires, and the quality of the light is pretty crappy. Yeah. So they come in with a better light. They come in with a, a Kiva-style financing program where the people basically take the money they were paying for kerosene and they apply it to the capital cost of the lamp, which is 10 or $20. The kids can stay up later doing homework and get better grades. The parents can take on a little craft business after they come in from the field. So this $20 lantern that provides better, safer, healthier light and eliminates the cost of kerosene from their budgets becomes a ladder out of poverty. So that's the kind of business that I'm spotlighting in Guerrilla Marketing to Heal the World. Excellent. It's a fantastic Excellent. book. I'm, I'm really, really excited about it. It's my 10th book, and I've never felt this positive about any book that I've done. Even Guerrilla Marketing Goes Green, which was wonderful, and even the – I'm actually pretty lucky to say that I, I pretty much only write good books uh, other than 
my first two when I didn't really know what I was doing yet. But the, the last eight have very, very high-quality content, and this is the best one yet. All right, well, excellent. And I've created a short link so people can go and see all your books on Amazon if they go to connieloves.me forward slash shell, S-H-E-L, then you'll go yeah. there. And also you have shellhorowitz.com. And is yep. that the very best place to connect with you as well uh, as that one, media? Or I, for corporations, I'd say go to goingbeyondsustainability.com. And for okay. entrepreneurs, impactwithprofit.com. And by the way, I just put up Amazon links to the new book on my own websites, and I actually went to the smile.amazon page because Amazon has yes. a new give back to charity program. So <laughs> – the, yes, I'm connected with Ro- with Rotary Santa Barbara with the smile with my yeah. Amazon so account. whatever link you yeah. give out, if you give them the smile link, then people can choose a charity to support when they go and make their purchases at Amazon. I also uh, recommend it's important to support your local independent bookstores. They keep the culture alive. Yes. Amazon has many advantages. Amazon also doesn't have many advantages. So. Use your dollars to make the impact that you can make, but what, however you do it, there are these phenomenal little extra things like Smile. I'm very, very happy about that program. Yeah, because it's really the little, you know, the, the programs that really start kind of grassroots, and then they get bigger and bigger and bigger, and it brings, you know, a lot of a lot of value to those groups. Because I was the one that told Rotary in Santa Barbara that they were eligible for it. They said, mm-hmm. you know, what, did we have to fill something out? And I said, no, we're a 501c3, and that's all that they're requiring. Yeah, so smile.amazon.com if you're buying from Amazon or use your independent bookseller or uh, booksense.com is actually the online presence of the independent bookselling community. So the books are Guerrilla Marketing Goes Green and also Guerrilla Marketing to Heal the World. They are already taking pre-orders for it. And, of course, if you order from me, you can get it signed. (laughs) Yes, yes. Yes, that's exactly. Yeah, I had somebody, he, he wrote to me, he said, he says, I'd love to have your book, but I only want it if it's signed. And so I said, I can make that happen. He sent me his address, and I put the new book in the mail to him. So Yeah, that's, and that's now it's fun. so easy for entrepreneurs to take payments online. It used to be much tougher. Yes. I actually let my merchant account go because now between PayPal and Intuit Payment Network, I have no need of it anymore. Right, right. Yeah, things things change. Well, Shell, it's been fantastic talking to you. Thank you so much for making the connection with me all those years ago and all this time since. My my life is definitely enriched by by knowing you, and now I feel like I know you better, and I'm sharing you with my community. So thank well, you. Thank you so much. And I do want to just tell people how to get a hold of me. All right. That, um, my email address is shel at greenandprofitable.com. And my Twitter is my name, S-H-E-L-H-O-R-O-W-I-T-Z. And if you have a business that you're interested in incorporating environmental and social change aspects into it, I will happily give any listener here a 15-minute free consult. Oh, excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you so, so much. I'll make sure that people far and wide hear about this <laughs> so they can take advantage. You'll be booked up to till 2018. Sounds good to me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, thanks again. Okay. This is Connie Reagan-Green from Huge Profits Tiny List with another call in the podcast series. Be sure to share this with as many people as you possibly can so everyone can hear the value and connect with Shell Horowitz. Take care. Bye-bye.